boys and ghouls, and welcome to a shiny new episode, all about that Stephen King creation, Silver Bullet. This 1985 film was based on King's slim illustrated book, Cycle of the Werewolf. King also wrote the screenplay for this story of a beast terrorizing a small town, and the only person that can stop it, a boy in a wheelchair. Starring Corey Haim as the chair-bound boy, and Gary Busey as the fun drunk uncle who is the only adult that believes him. This video store favorite has been charming viewers for many moons. So, circle your calendar, stay up late, have some hair of the dog, and enjoy our exploration into Silver Bullet. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Dummies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing. Dead, I want to kill you. You ever talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Roll the third switch. The third switch is my creation. Five. All right. Yeah. But um, this is a stretchy material. Nice. Yeah. Men are pretty. These jeans have I mean, some they, give, but they look regular. But then, like, I put it on and I can feel it. I'm just like, oh, that's nice. Middle age man. <laughs> that's nice. Stretchy, almost diaper ish. <laughs> and, and and these shoes, likewise, are mm. quite stretchy. And I bought some uh, some work pants, some dickies, the waistband. It's got some give. Comfort becomes so important. I can't just wear hard leather and rough denim. Yeah, I've got to like, I got to fit into it. Yeah. Or, you know, I will still wear hard clothes. Not very often because I do work from home. But when I do, if I go out and I wear, like, a nice high-waisted, like, tight pair of jeans. Oh, boy. When I get home, it's a thing that 10 years ago wouldn't have happened. But I get home and I'm just like, oh, thank God I can take this off. Cut into you, like, whalebone corsets of old. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I need a swooning couch. Um, hey, Kat. Hey, Marshall. Do you have spooky gab? I've. Because it's been months. Since I know. We've I know. Like, I kind of sat around earlier today and and we thought went about a whole it. Halloween since. Is that right? Yeah. Our, our last episode was a Halloween episode. I mean, I, I think I had a pretty spooktacular October, but have I done anything particularly spooky? I don't know. If I had remembered that it has been since October, I would have been like, all right, let me look at my calendar and see if there's anything. Spooky, I did. Well, did you not go to the... Did you not? (laughs) I feel like I'm on the stand. Go to the um, Stranger Things pop-up. I did. I did. It was kind of... um, I knew it was there, but it was kind of an afterthought because some friends of mine and I had met up at the Americana and... Just for brunch? uh, No, just for for walking around. We did end up getting some empanadas. There's a stand like that I'd never thought to pick some up from. They were amazing. But we weren't really there for food. We just were there to kind of walk around and shop and yeah, chat. And sure. just sort of like, it was a little bit omicron then. So we were kind of mostly like, we were outside. And then if we went in a store, we were masked. And we didn't spend a ton of time just like indoors together. The, the Americana, folks, is a uh, outdoor mall. Yeah. Just fancy. 
but they let you know that they're trying to be fancy. So yes, so I couched, did go to the Stranger Things pop-up. Yeah. Was the Stranger Things pop-up, which I thought it was going to be like a maze, kind of like the Fear Street pop-up was just like a maze and you go through and then they're like, have a tote bag. Goodbye. I use that tote bag when I grocery shop, by the way. Um, but the Stranger Things pop-up is more of a themed merch experience, I would say. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. As much as the Disney stores are themed Disney. Sure. This store is themed Stranger Things. Right. So it's, and there's some photo ops, too. Sure. You yeah. got, like, the living room set up that looks like, you know, with, like, the Christmas lights and the, mm-hmm. the alphabet. And then you got the um, the lockers and it looks like the snowball dance. You can, like, turn on the particle generator or whatever yeah. it is. And, yeah. And you can stand next to a figure of the... Uh, the Demogorgon? The Demogorgon, correct. And then a little arcade area with, mm-hmm. like, three or four just classic arcade games. And I couldn't find a, uh, a coin machine mm. to get some quarters from. No matter. They were free. Oh, my God. What a world where I can go up to just any Miss Pac-Man or uh, Galaga and just, like, just press start and you're there. I also have to say that I thought the clothing merchandise at that pop-up was really cool. They had like... Did you buy anything? I didn't. And if I'd been there much longer, I probably would have dropped some money because they had like really cool letter jackets, like high school... From Hawkins? Yeah, yeah. Or middle school. Yeah, like really cool, really good quality, like letter jackets and t-shirts and like sweatpants and just, I don't know how to make it sound as cool as it was, but they just looked cool. Maybe it's that there's something magical about, instead of wearing a shirt that says Stranger Things, you're wearing a shirt that says like Hawkins Middle School. Or Phys Ed. Yeah, totally. Uh, You know, when the 80s were over, I never thought someone would go out of their way to recreate them, but it was kind of nice, just all the, the little touches, like... Ah, geometric shapes and neon colors. Uh, feels good. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's been months since we recorded, so this uh, spooky gab is months old. Mm-hmm. But I've got a friend named Jonathan, and Jonathan used to work for a guy who was he was a producer, he was a TV producer, and he was an incredible monster kid. He was of that generation, the monster kid generation, and with the money he made, he just put it into buying monster kid things and and other movie memorabilia posters of the old classic monster movies big fan of lost in space and he was considered i don't know who's calculating this kind of thing but he was considered to have the largest private monsters memorabilia collection whoa and this is a friend of a friend Uh, a boss Uh, a former boss he worked for this guy i see i see at prometheus entertainment which was the company of kevin burns uh, they did Girls Next Door. They would do sort of like reality TV. Mm-hmm. They would also do like uh, History's Mysteries, I believe, mm-hmm. or Ancient mm-hmm. Aliens. Cool. I, I may have misquoted one of those. Uh, he passed away um, mm. in the last year or so. And actually um, on our Instagram, uh, Jonathan sort of contacted me because when, when he found out I liked horror movies, he was like, any of the sort of the jollier end of horror, I think. Sure. The Monster Kid end of horror. Yeah, really. Which I guess is a good way to sum up the Monster Kids. It's a sort of jolly uh, appreciation of horror. You know, sometimes we just talk about some classic horror movie and he'd be like, oh yeah, my old boss, he had like the original clothes worn by that guy. Or he had this great limited edition poster that they'd only hand out to the first hundred kids back in like 1960. But you know, he has like three of them or something. Or like he had to spend a day waiting at his boss's house for like this piece of memorabilia to arrive he was so Mm -hmm. excited about it 
But he contacted me when his boss passed. And uh, I don't know how much he's really known out in the world just because I had trouble finding a photo of him. Mm. I mean, I found one. But then I was like, how about more than one? Yeah. But uh, so here's his legacy, I guess you could say. I was on Mick Garris's social media. Mm -hmm. And he was like, surrounded by memorabilia here at the uh, Heritage Auction House. I where was, the Kevin Burns collection. I was wondering where this was going in and if it was going, going toward an estate sale or an auction or something. It was an auction. Uh-huh. So uh, I contacted Jonathan. I was like, check this out. We're both free on Friday, which was only like three or four days from then. Let's go down there and, you know, have a look and, you know, see the stuff. So we got together and we went there to um, the auction house. And this is like my third time in, by the way, in Beverly Hills. Every auction house I've gone to has been mm-hmm, in Beverly mm-hmm. Hills. And every time, I'm afraid they're just going to look me up and down and go, uh, sir, are you sure you belong here? <laughs> and every time, they're nice as pie. Yeah. And happy that you're into what they spent the last week, like, making look nice. Let me ask you, when you say auction house, is this mm. a, like, a commercial location, like a storefront, like a place they've set things up and it's not his house? Or is it... Oh, no, no. It's it's a... Um, like a Christie's, but not Christie's. Like a company that does Yeah, a, a okay, company. Got it, got like, it. like, we didn't go to his home. Got it. This is a okay. place of business. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're headed into this auction house. Yeah, and you got to press a buzzer to get in, and they're like, what, what do you want? And I'm like, um, hello, we're here to view... And I looked at Jonathan, he just shrugs. And view the collection of Kevin Burns. And I'm like, uh, hold on. Uh- <laughs> Turn, turns out... The collection didn't stay up for long. I thought it would stay up until the actual auction. Mm-hmm. So people can come look at it and right. go like, yes, I'll right, right. buy that. Right. But it was broken down so it could get packaged so it could be sold like oh, that weekend. I see. Back in the box. Oh. A few items were still left out. And they got a guy from the back, Joe Moe, um, right? I couldn't quite remember his <laughs> name. And then I went looking under this uh, catalog that they gave us. Yeah. And I was like, I know it was like a fun name. Who here? Like Turk or something. I was like, ah, Joe Mo. <laughs> That's a great name. So Joe Mo came out and this wasn't just some random auction house. This is a place that had dealt with and known Kevin Burns, cool. Monster Kid. Rich Monster Kid, mm. who was able to buy as much as every Monster Kid wished they could. Right. I'll say. But through his years of collecting, you know, he was friends with this guy who was also like in this world. I think he was who like verified and I don't know what you do in that job. A praise. He mm-hmm. praised, probably. Mm-hmm. And authenticated pop culture items. Cool. And him and Jonathan got to spend like a little while just sort of reminiscing about this guy and being like, oh man, you know, Kevin, he was really into this and he loved that. And Jonathan was able to point to certain items and be like, oh yeah, that was in the office, like right there, that old pinball machine with the monsters on it and this and that. And I guess I'll show you this right now. I'm going to bring up some photos. While I do, let me hand you the catalog. Oh, holy cow. They're like, well, you guys made the trip. Let me give you a couple catalogs. Which, you have to buy the catalogs for the big auctions. And that was like 50 bucks. Wow. But, uh, you know, we were there as a, Whoa. as almost a memorial, I suppose. And the, wow. the two of them really talked over old times. Because I don't know if he got a proper, because he died during COVID. Mm. So I really don't know. Yep. Holy moly. The catalog is arranged rather chronologically, so you're starting with, like, movie memorabilia oh, from the 20s. wow. And the silent era. Oh, naughty. 
<laughs> and it just Some goes it. from there. John Wayne. Oh, my goodness. John Wayne personal custom-made Stetson cowboy hat starting bid $2,500. Wow, this is really cool. Well, you have something bookmarked with oh, the well, King that, of Oh, that's clubs. like a tribute to him. Oh, wow. It, it gives you like a, oh, him a little as a rundown little of his life and his fascination with monster movies and, and such. Now, the focus, I mean, they named this auction. It's on the front. What's it called? Monsters and Friends Monsters featuring and Friends. the Kevin Burns collection. Yeah. So this book, <sighs> and this is a thick book, is just like the stuff he owned. It's massive. Yeah. Now, you're on the monster section there, and that yeah. goes for a while. It really does. Holy cow. There's things here. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't changed. That I've only seen photos of. Yeah. Original artwork from, like, the covers of Famous Monsters magazines. It's unreal. Issues of these, like, classic fan magazines. Wow. Was that Charlton Heston's uh, oh outfit from God. Planet of the Apes? His astronaut outfit. Holy not, like, the cloth. shit. Starting bid, eight grand. Oh, yeah, some of these starting bids. Wow. I think the most expensive thing I, I found as far as starting bid was, um, and it should be around there somewhere. Ooh, Quince Machete. Yeah. From Jaws is twelve grand starting bid. Somewhere in there is Bruce Lee's nunchucks from Enter the Dragon. How much was that? I think the starting bid was twenty grand. Wow. Kelly LeBrock's studded leather jacket from Weird Science. Right? Good lord. Like the Oh my god. Oh my god. A Cobra Kai gee jacket and, think, and pants. I think that's from the show. Oh, no, no, that's no from, it's from, from the, the movie. Karate Kid. Yeah. Oof. And now, like, who bought all this stuff? I'm picturing just, like, Rob Zombie and... Oh, yeah. Kirk Hammett from Metallica. Oh, is he a collector? Yeah. As well as just various monster kids. I, I hope some real fans got to uh, yeah. reabsorb some of this stuff, you know. Wow, Iron Man Repulsor Glove from Iron Man 2. This is wild. Yep. Truly and, wild. Okay, because he was such a huge fan of um, Lost in Space, Uh huh. there's no Lost in Space in there. So they had mentioned to us, like, hey, guys, uh, sorry you missed the, the big show. Come back when we do it again. Mm. And I was looking at that catalog. I was like, I don't know what, what could possibly be left. Right. But once I really looked through it and saw there was no Lost in Space stuff in there, I was like, oh. I don't understand how he gets things like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man feet part of the costume just the uh, feet huh a cowl from captain america the first avenger and multiple versions of the vibranium shield from different movies mm. thor's hammer like literally how jeez okay wow well my mind so, is officially blown i told you that not everything had gotten packed up oh look you just found freddy krueger's screen used mask from the terrifying alley sequence Okay, so, so they put a mask on him instead of like. He was in the shadows, yeah. Yeah. Most of the time. Okay. Right next to a uh, Mr. Fusion. I know, right? I'm ready to listen, okay. Okay. So, what didn't you. Well, oh, there I'll was a few like pinball games and kind of larger items mm-hmm. that weren't packed up yet, including what I, I knew he owned, what I'd been told that he owned, like back when I was first given a rundown about this man. Like, yeah. oh man, he's got all sorts of stuff. He's got Grandpa's electric chair from the Monsters. <laughs> Yeah, I can see why they wouldn't have packed that one up yet. So all these great costumes. Look and bo- at you. So I'm I'm looking at a picture of Marshall posing with Grandpa's electric chair. Yeah. That's really cool. Wow. Yeah. All these great like board games and memorabilia movie posters. They had all been packaged up. But um, I got to see and pose with uh, 
grandpa's electric chair before who knows who owns it now. Um, that is awesome. Yeah. And um, I was like, Jonathan, do you want a picture with it? He's like, I used to sit in it. Wow. <laughs> it was just in the office. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. So um, I like to think uh, dozens upon dozens of people who got some of this stuff, they will for some time keep in their memory one Kevin Burns Monster Kid. That was some good spooky gap. Thank you. It began in May. And every month after that, whenever the moon was full, it happened again. And again. What was that? It's over there. Who was that at me? Nobody knew who or what was responsible. Come on. They only knew it had to be stopped. Now, from the master of mystery and suspense, Stephen King's Silver Bullet. Hey, Cat. Marshall. It's been months. Yeah. And we decided to give ourselves an easy one. Um, That's how it always starts out, isn't it? Yeah. We're like, this will be easy. Our topic, Silver Bullet, never got a sequel or a remake. It was based on a Stephen King. I've been hearing people say like novella and novelette. Seemed pretty easy. And then life kept getting in the way. So like we took like three runs at it. It's like, okay, let's become experts on Silver Bullet. It's like, oh, we can't record. <laughs> and then, like, some time would pass. And it's like, let's start over and do it again. Oh, uh, it's Christmas. Yeah, it's yeah. Christmas. And then, like, oh, I've got relatives. And then it's like, okay, now we're going to do it. So this is, like, our third time yeah. diving into Silver Bullet so we can then meet face-to-face. As with everything in the world these days, it just took a little longer and was a little more difficult to make it happen. But the important thing is we got to the finish line. Yes. Here we are. And we didn't just choose it because it's easy. I've been a fan of Silver Bullet. For a while, and then reading the book, then a fan of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very early core memory for me as a kid watching this movie, yeah. for sure. Made deep impressions on me. I was very scared by it. And I don't think I read the book in its entirety until for this recording, and I read it twice. Once on its own, and then once you gave me the book you had checked out from the library Yeah, that had the illustrations in it. Bernie Wrightson? Oh, there it is. Right here. I rechecked it out. Yes. Nice. Because we're doing this all again. Silver Bullet. The last glimmering hope. Published in 1985. At some point, a kid brought this into my grade school to kind of show off and pass around. And I was like, oh, so this is Stephen King. Do you remember that? Like, was it that cover that you're holding now? It was was definitely these illustrations. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, great, it's got pictures. And what pictures? Yeah, they're really something. They're great. Here he is, the werewolf chasing a kid, oh, holding onto his kite. The kite. There he is, attacking the guy. In the in, diner. In the diner. Yeah. And <laughs> an image that, that really got me, though, oh, that I remembered pigs. as a kid was this one. It takes place at Halloween, and I was like, is Yoda this story? <laughs> no, no, no. It takes place at Halloween, and he's dressed, he's as, dressed Yoda. as Yoda. And when pop culture, I mean, I'm used to it now, definitely, but as a kid, I had to get used to pop culture that incorporated other pop culture into itself. Mm-hmm. So, like, in E.T., 
when he shows E.T. his Star Wars men. It just made it like so real for me. I was like, oh, I've got Star Wars yeah. guys. And then here at Silver Bullet, he's going out for Halloween and he's not dressed like a hobo or a clown. It's like so many things will do, especially sitcoms. Yeah. It'll be a whole Halloween party and the closest to an intellectual property might be Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's like... <laughs> a witch. Cheerleader. A devil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But no, this And guy, this is just lumpy back of green head guy. Unmistakably Yoda. <laughs> it's definitely Yoda. Yeah. But yes, and within this, you can also see the priest with the eye patch. And I don't know if somebody told me or I just inferred it, but there has never been a time when I didn't know who the werewolf was. Mm, yeah. And um, folks, if you're listening to this for the first time, I'd say watch the movie and then get back to us. Definitely. Because we are only spoilers. Mm-hmm. Wow, what an ending. Who'd have thought Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father? Ah, oh, thank, oh, thank you, Mr. Blow the Picture for me. It took me a long time to read Stephen King. Like, I was out of high school. But I was, like, just out of high school before I read my first Stephen King. But wow. I'd seen, like, lots of his movies. He was always a stamp of quality. What was your first Stephen King? Eyes of the Dragon. Oh, which I knew that. Which is really an outlier. It's so good. And I gotta tell you, so far, The yeah. Talisman, real hard Eyes of the Dragon vibes. Okay. And also very Dark Tower vibes. Yeah. Anyway. Hmm. But you'd seen a lot of the movies. As mo- I feel like most of our first introduction to Stephen King are oh, yeah. movies. Well, there were also Stephen King movies that had children in them. Charlie McGee is a healthy eight-year-old girl. Normal in every way but one. So, like, Firestarter was out when I was a kid. Like, a young kid. And then so was Cat's Eye. Both with Drew Barrymore. Cat's Eye, I know, was a Dino De Laurentiis production. Mm-hmm. Dino De Laurentiis with the De Laurentiis Company. Saw some real value in the works of Stephen King mm-hmm. to be made into movies. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the first, but uh, boy, he grabbed on with both hands. He did, and there were a series of Stephen King movies that he and his wife, Martha. not his wife yet, Mar- no. she was credited as Martha Schumacher. Yes. But she became Martha De Laurentiis. Mm-hmm. But they and their production company, they made Firestarter. Charlie McGee is Stephen King's Firestarter. There was a whole series of, like, Wilmington, North Carolina, Stephen King movies. Of which Silver Bullet was among and one of the first. Yes. Like, they were just setting up. Yes. Okay, let's go to that, I guess, first with the production of the movie. Just because mm-hmm. you mentioned sure. it. And you're from yeah. North Carolina. Uh-huh. There has been a lot of movies made in North Carolina and TV shows. Dawson's Creek comes to mind. Yes. And this was because there were, like, certain tax incentives. Which Del Rentis was taking advantage of. And he slash they really got the whole film and TV industry kicked off into high gear yeah. with these little Stephen King movies. Instead of just coming by, setting up a movie, then breaking it down and going back to Hollywood, he set up like sound stages. He set up a full company in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And others followed, and he continued to make products in North Carolina. And it's still humming there now. Like, it's a major hub of film and TV production. When I was 13 and, like, yeah. super-duper into Dawson's Creek, you probably know this, but I went and toured Screen Gem Studios, which is I where they... didn't know this. Oh, my God. Like, it was one of the biggest, most memorable moments of my life. Did you my... get to see sets from Dawson's yes! Creek? Yes! Yes! There are physical pictures somewhere that I hope to find one day. Maybe my mom has them, but... I went with my best friend Amanda and her mom, okay. but we went there to tour the sets. We got to walk down the hallways, see the lockers. We got to see, never forget, Dawson's room. 
And the fact that when he walked out, we could see from outside the room into his bedroom. And the fact that when he walked out of his bedroom, there was a staircase, but it was only like, you know, a couple feet, couple feet down. And like, we were like, we're in the rest of the house, but there is no rest of the house. He's just walking out of his bedroom onto this set. How old did you say you were? 13. That blew my mind to see like a real soundstage, real sets on the hit TV show. When I went to see a taping of Double Dare. You went to see a taping of Double Dare? They filmed in Philadelphia. I'm very yeah. jealous. And I, I watched that show religiously. Just, just like, wow. Fun. But anyway, so I, I rant about that just to say that I can't stress enough how like big and you know impressive this production studio sure. was. And it all started Maximum really Overdrive, big Evil time. Two, yeah. And Blue Velvet. Yeah. <laughs> among its luminaries. It's a strange world, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking of Firestarter, mm. it was produced by the De Laurentiis Company. Mm-hmm. I had never seen it. I know. Probably seen bits of it as a kid. I haven't seen it as an adult. Well, I rented it through my local library. Thank you. And mm. digitally. But the reason I went and watched it is because I was reading all of this stuff about this history of you know production in North Carolina and how it was sort of on the backs of these Stephen King movies. And they did a lot of them all in short order, but... I was like, I should see it because, you know, I know Drew Barrymore is supposed to be really fantastic in it. And number one, I really enjoyed it. Number two, score by Tangerine Dream. It's incredible. The score is great. Number three, the North Carolina of it all was really fun. At one point, someone like pulls in to go to, to a store or to the post office or something. And there's a sign that very vividly, like you can see it and it says... Chimney Rock, which I've been to, like it's a mountain town in North Carolina. Sure. And I realized that like the North Carolina De Laurentiis Stephen King movie aesthetic is big time a, North a fave thing. for me. I'm into it. And I don't know that I've seen Cat's Eye again. Maybe I've seen bits and pieces of it, but it's high on my list now because I had such a delicious time watching Firestarter. There's something about the, like, scrappy production value of that sure. and Silver Bullet as well, where it's, it's for my money, really well directed. The cast is great. I learned some stuff in the commentary about the making of it and the work that they did and all of that. Obviously, highly skilled people making these movies, but, like, it's still scrappy. It still feels, like, held together with a little bit of spit. It's a you know bit of I mean? an underdog story. There you go. Yeah. So you wanted to talk about the make... How the book came about. You want to know my incorrect perception? Always. Just looking at this book, because which is very thin and full of illustrations, I thought it was a short story, then they made the movie Silver Bullet, and then they were like, oh, now we got to put out a book of the short story, and they're like, mm, it's too thin. I know. Fill it with pictures. That was just what I reasoned out. Makes sense. Just yeah. looking at it without putting in research, which mm-hmm. I now have. Okay, here's how it for real started. Uh, There was a small publishing company back in the mid-1980s. At the World Fantasy Convention in 1979, Land of Enchantment Press approached Stephen King and said, would he consider writing, I'm just reading verbatim, 12 linked vignettes accompanied by illustrations from Bernie Wrightson. Uh, Bernie Wrightson, among his accomplishments, was the co-creator of Swamp Thing. So, you know, he's no slouch. And King was on board. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, 12 um, little short stories. Mm-hmm. And then, so it was King who reasoned out, you know, 12 months, the moon, 
Yeah. Werewolves. Yeah. All right, slam dunk. Which is why the first chapters are all pretty short. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing in this is too long, but it's just like January. You got the guy by the railroad tracks, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, the the beast is here. Um, he was killed out in his railroad shed. Um, February, the Miss Lonely Hearts, who is just kind of swoony and dreamy, and she's like, a man has come to my trellis. That's not a man. Mm-hmm. Um, March. Um, Are you doing this from memory? I've listened to the audiobook like a bunch of times. I've I mean, been driving I'm, around. I'm looking at my list. Of, I mean, we'll see how well you do because okay. I've got it written down. Okay. By the um, way, February that you mentioned is Stella Randolph. Stella Randolph. She owns the sit and sew. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what happens in March? March is a drifter gets killed and the howls are heard all over town. March more focuses on the town. Tarkers yes. Mills. And a relationship between Milt and Donnelly Sturmfuller. Who are the librarian and his wife, and they have this, like, he's, like, abusive. Yeah. Yeah? yeah and he, then, yes, the drifter later. dies. Okay, mm-hmm. that's March. And, by the way, focusing on the town and setting up, you know, a town full of characters. Mwah, classic yeah. king. April? April, well, it starts with different characters. So, you know, it's like, this guy, and then it's like, and the waitress. And you're like, oh, is it going to be the waitress? Or the drunk who wandered out. Is it going to be them? No. It's the boy in the movie. It's Brady. Yeah, it's Brady in the book too. So you're like he's eleven, adult, adult. Who's it going to be? A child who he's flying his kite for just too long, and the sun sets on him, and then like the kite goes behind the bushes, and he can feel it kind of tugging, and he's like, oh no, oh no, it's very upsetting. Do you remember how he's found? He's decapitated with the kite in his hand, propped up against the war memorial. Yeah. Woof. Um, Headless and disemboweled. A war memorial that's really used in like the small town iconography. Yeah. By the way, just a tiny sidebar to mm. the movie. I was like, why is a body getting found in a town square like reverberating in my head as like a Stephen King dead thing? Zone. And it took me a minute to figure it out, but it was the dead zone on the bandstand. Yeah. The girl gets like raped and killed, right? Um, it's a Stephen King thing, and it's so like it's so evocative. The image of yeah. someone killed for the town to come and find in the most innocent safe place in town which is like the gathering place the place where everyone comes to like picnic on the fourth of july i thought as far as just like small town iconography being of no help the covered bridge Mm -hmm. in the movie yeah when when marty gets stuck in it definitely all right so that was april may may is hold on oh is may the nightmare yeah the um, Reverend has his nightmare, and then the janitor, Clyde Corliss, at the church gets yeah. killed. That makes June is the guy in the... It's a warm June night. Maybe I'll knock off early and go to the drive-in. It's Alfie Knopfler, who owns the Chat and Chew. So we have yeah. the Sit and Sew and the Chat comes and Chew. In. Yeah. A customer he sees every day. But at this point, we don't... I mean, if you figure the Reverend having the dream, like, it's the Reverend. Right. It's not really revealed. Yeah. What a cool device that the narrator is telling you, like, this is a person that the owner of this diner has seen, seen every day. Yeah. So this is somebody in the Normally, town. not past 10 a.m. Yeah. Yeah, so he gets it. Okay, in now July. we're July. Now, July is the jumping off point because this is when Stephen King went over with his word count and had to, I picture sheepishly, <laughs> I have no idea, had to go... I mean, maybe he's like, I'm Stephen King. Take it or leave it. But I, I think he was like, hey, guys, do you mind if instead of a calendar, we do, now bear with me, a book? 
And this small press, you know, if you got a Stephen King book, that's like printing your own money. Totally. And so they were like, we'll make yeah, it work. yeah. <laughs> we'll take a book from you. So I think in the creation of Marty Kozlaw, Kozlaw, mm-hmm. I think it's Kozlaw. I say Kozlaw. 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 With the introduction of him coming in and the year is half over. Yeah. With his introduction, he really took off and just started writing more and more and sort of how he fits into the family dynamic. And he's very disappointed the fireworks were canceled, not just because he likes fireworks, but because he's in a wheelchair. He's really, you know, for every time he couldn't participate in a game with the other boys, he's like, well, fireworks. Every time he couldn't go sledding, he's like, well, I got those fireworks to look forward to. And then canceled. Fireworks are canceled. We can all now relate to being disappointed at things being canceled that we were looking forward to, can't we? Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) It resonates all the more. But in July, nobody gets killed. No. His Uncle Al, later to be renamed Uncle Red for the film, Mm -hmm. he didn't have the fireworks ready to give him. He just had fireworks. And Marty's looking for sympathy. He's not finding it. Certainly not with his sister. Both of his parents are kind of weird around him in different ways. Mm -hmm. His father is like, hey, hey, little buddy. Because he's like a gym teacher and can't relate to his son. Yeah. And his sister, it's established. She's always like, you get everything you want. But there's like a flashback to where the time he fell out of bed. And she's like, you're trying to kill yourself? And then leaves room crying. And I'm like, okay, that's the acorn mm-hmm. that would later be used to grow in the movie of their sort of like rivalry, their love-hate relationship, I guess. But, you know, they come to, the whole arc of the movie is is them growing together. But Uncle Al was just like, oh, no fireworks, huh? I happen to have a package of fireworks in my car. Just that he was going to use himself later. And he's like, don't light off the loud ones. So there are quiet fireworks, mm-hmm. just ones that go like, mm-hmm. yeah. And let off more colors in, in a dragon's breath. And that attracts the werewolf and a quick thinking young man. Not unlike in Salem's Lot, you know, it's the kid who is like, oh, vampires. Mm-hmm. Because kids still believe in vampires. Mm-hmm. And Marty's able to go, ah, oh, werewolf. And not be frozen in his tracks by disbelief as some of the other victims were. Right. And he takes not a rocket like in the movie, but just like a, a series of snappers and just like puts him against the werewolf's face and the werewolf goes running off. And mm-hmm. uh, that's July. Yep. And then August. August. I just wrote the, down who the, dies. The sheriff. The constable. The constable. Constable Neary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. September. September. Oh, is the, the pig farmers. Yeah, there's a pig farmer and he's too scared to go out outside. And, and his pigs get all slaughtered. Pig gets, oh, it's so upsetting. Slaughtered. And no one actually dies, but all of his pigs are slaughtered. And then these two old main guys go, yeah, we're going to go hunting. But let's wait a couple of months till there's no leaves on the trees. Mm-hmm. October, there is a deer that's found killed uh, mm-hmm. like out by the highway. But really, it's time for Marty to go investigating. And he's got no one to turn to to help him. So it takes all the way to Halloween night. And I, I really like what they do in the movie, but I would also love to see this use of Halloween oh. as a way to find a werewolf. Well, I thought about you because mm-hmm. of your anecdote about how yeah. one thing you liked about Halloween as a kid is that when you went door to door, you got to see inside other people's houses and it's how they've s- got it all laid up. Yeah. Right? And not not like their Halloween decorations, but just like... No, their house. Like how, they've how are got, these people living? Right. Like they've got a big long couch that wraps around and they've got, you know... Yeah. Um, I thought about you when I was reading this book because it was like, oh my gosh, he's going door to door because he realizes he hurt the werewolf. Yeah. And that if 
He trick or treat anyways, but right. He's being pushed by his father right. in his Yoda costume. Yeah. So if the werewolf knew who he was, he won't be able to tell with the costume on. Well, no, he knows he's in the Yoda costume. He's the only kid in the wheelchair. Oh, but right. He can't see his face. It's a full rubber Don Post mask. Right. And he can't see Marty going, oh, right. my gosh. Right. When Marty sees, finally, I found the adult who, um, he put the werewolf's eye out. That's right. That's what's going on is that obviously the werewolf knows who he is, but the werewolf doesn't know that he knows who the werewolf is. They don't know that we know that they know. Does that make Specifically, sense? Specifically, he doesn't yet, but he will. Right. Of course. But um, not at this moment. Once he starts getting letters. Yes. So, so November, which is the next day, because it's Halloween. Yeah. He starts getting letters from somebody, and that's when he starts listening to gossip. And this is the most internal you get of the Reverend. Yeah. Well, he has this memory of an odd flower he picked. Yes. Oh. Last yeah. November. And oh, I was like, well, yeah. Because. We know what that flower was. Wolf Spain? Probably. Well, it, it says an unusual flower he's never seen before. Right. He cut it, and by the time he got it, it, it was growing in a cemetery, and by the time he got it home, it had turned black. Mm. And That had to have something to do with it. Clearly cursed. Yeah. And just enough for the reader to go, oh, okay, because he's not bitten by a werewolf. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, they say, like, maybe he doesn't know why he's a werewolf. Mm-hmm. It's just this thing that happens. Right. And it gives you an explanation, and you're like, do you accept it? Because if not, that's all you're getting. Right. But also internally, the wolf side of the Reverend is keeping him from caring, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. about all the killings. Yeah. And it's helping him rationalize. And nothing helps him rationalize more than in November. He knows all the hunters are going one way. So he just gets in his car and goes the other way. Yeah. And runs into the abusive husband. Yep. So he's At like, the motel. I go two hours out of town and I wind up killing like the worst guy in... Tarker's Mills. Right. Must this be God's must, plan. Must be the will and the mind of God. Mm-hmm. So that's November. That's right. But he's been receiving those threats and he's been listening to gossip now when he had right. it before and he found out, ah, it's young Marty Cosinall that says he encountered the werewolf on the mm-hmm. 4th of July. So now it's New Year's Eve and it's a full moon. And you might be like, Valentine's? Oh, the, the second one was on Valentine's Day. These couldn't all have full moons in one calendar year. He addresses that in the book. Like, afterwards. Yeah. Like, afterward. Yeah, I know. So what? Yeah. He's like, look, <laughs> if you know about the moon and you know about moon cycles, you know that there's no way in this year and this time and this way that these moon occurrences happened. But deal with it. Yeah. And I hope this isn't a little dry that we're just going through the book chapter by chapter. But Oh, I considered it a really thrilling exercise because, as I said at the top, you were doing all of this off the top of your head. I made notes. You remembered the shit in order. Yes, I, I did. Ask him your question, and he will answer you fully and freely. Mr. Memory. What happens in the movie happens now, but like all in December, which is he finally gets Uncle Al to believe him to have somebody craft the silver bullet and wait up with him on New Year's Eve for the werewolf to come and get him, mm-hmm. which he, believe, he correctly believes mm-hmm. he's going to do. And uh, they they do manage to uh, take care of the werewolf, kill the beast. And the, the year long terror is over, and the it just like just as the ball drops, it's still sticking to the notion of being a calendar, even though by this right. point it's it's a book. Yeah, it ends as the year ends, like mm-hmm. three, two, one, book over. Well, and I wrote down for December that there is a 
quote, things change, things don't change overview of the town. It's just sort of like a pulling back, like, ah, yes, this is a town we visited and the things oh, that yeah, happen yeah. in this town, which it's so Stephen King and I adore. Yeah, just various characters, little tangential people, but it's yeah. still. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Hey, everybody. That was the book. That's the in book. order. Yeah. <laughs> with everyone who gets killed. But you know what? In case my pros were whisking you away to this magical place, uh, read the book mm-hmm. and get the full experience. Do you know what scares me? People who don't use their local library. So check out your local library. Who knows? We might just run into each other. So it was, I guess, optioned by the De Laurentiis company. And this was mentioned in the special features that Don Coscarelli, who brought us Phantasm and Bubba Hotep and Beastmaster and, and other films, was uh, involved with the picture. And there's been some misinformation out there, which it makes me wonder, how much misinformation are we putting out? Sure. Because I heard through a podcast that really seems to try to know its stuff, they were like, oh, yeah, Coscarelli came on and he shot some of it, but they had disagreements. So some of his footage is in the picture, but none with the werewolf because he didn't like the werewolf. He shot none of it. Right. Well, the director and the director, Daniel Addis's commentary, he's like, I never met the guy. I don't, I, I, don't, I shot thing. everything in the movie. I don't even know who that yeah. is. <laughs> Fortunately, there's King Cast mm-hmm. that has Don Coscarelli on to discuss the movie Silver Bullet. And he set some rumors straight. He was brought on in the early development. He did a draft of the script that wasn't really liked. He did not have faith that the werewolf would look very good. So he kept trying to write around the werewolf, like Jaws, which is what wound up happening. Right. They, they kind of shot around the werewolf, which is, I believe, the right thing to do. Yeah. But earlier on, De Laurentiis was like, no, you got to see the werewolf and it's going to look great. And it's going to be like, ah. Hiding in the shadows of the cave was a, a werewolf. And later, the other director was brought on, whose name is? Daniel Adius couple things about him he was hired based on a, a student film yeah he had done and this is his only feature he went on to direct a metric shit ton of television yes but this is his only but this feature. is his only feature film and one just charming thing i thought um and i feel like this is a journey that a lot of people who are involved with horror movies take at least those who are in horror movies that wind up beloved later on jamie lee curtis comes to mind But he says that after the movie came out, he sort of, like, wanted to distance himself from it because he wasn't very proud of it. Yeah. But then over the years, there just started to be this upswell of love and support. And people come up to him and go, oh, my God, you directed Silver Bullet, that movie of my childhood, blah, blah, blah. I love that movie. And he's like, now I just feel such pride at being involved in it. I feel like that's so often, like, working in horror as an actor, as a director, is often people's shame. They're like, it's a job. I did my best at it, but like, mm-hmm. I don't really care about horror. I don't care. But then... You love it when they own it. Right. I do like when they come around to it. Yeah. And I think that's through the power of the fans, I'd say. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I love that he was shown the error of his ways. But yeah. Um, he <laughs> His error being to not like the movie that he made. Yeah. Well, it's great. Um, I also wanted to say... Oh, he was the second AD on both E.T. and Airplane. Yeah, he put he his time as an assistant director before becoming mm-hmm. a director director. And he even said, sort of in relation to this idea that he wasn't in it for the horror, he's not really a fan of horror, he said uh, it was the complex family dynamics and, quote, how people deal with wounds that drew him to the film. So he was very invested in the family dynamics. He loved Marty. He loved the idea of Uncle Red and Marty. 
And one thing I thought was kind of interesting as him as kind of like an actor's director is, you know, there's the scene, I guess it's the first scene we see with Uncle Red where he's playing cards with Marty. And the mom comes in and they have this big argument. He said that he had the mom and Gary Busey, those two actors, like do some improv to figure out how that scene would go. Like this was not a moment that was really in the script. Don't be telling me what to do. You've been telling me what to do all my life. Red, I don't care how you live, but he is a very impressionable little boy. And so he had them improv and then scripted something out based on how their improv had gone for them to perform for that scene because he wanted to establish this idea of Uncle Red as, like, kind of a loser. The mom thinks he's a loser. And I just adore that. Marty has enough strikes against him as it is. You're not having strikes against him. That I am scared to death that someday he is just going to give up. He's not going to give up. Well, he doesn't need you showing him how to do it. I also think it's, you noted this about the locals, but the main cast, they cast out of New York. So they were up there and pulled actors, like working actors Mm -hmm. out of New York. But then everybody else, they cast them all from local, like Wilmington, that area. Oh, yeah. Like the bar scene and like when they're going to do the private justice or whatever he calls it. That scene and like anything where you're seeing a bunch of locals. You know, I really liked where you guys were falling down out there. Very professional. Look okay? Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. God, great faces. And great faces in the bottles and cans scene. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. it's just like kind of going past yeah. like suspects, really. Yes. In small town America. Yeah. You want to go in, in some kind of order? Sure. But just like the movie? Well, um, here's... Here's a a big bit. It's supposed to take place in 1976. Yeah, spring 1976 is when it opens. And it's so not. Yeah. And once I got that in my head, like, every little thing, I'd be like, wait, there's a Diet Coke can. I looked it up. It wasn't made until 1980. I wonder why they did that. Well, it was supposed to be so the narration would make sense as an adult looking back. Mm. So there's that. Actually, that's it. But... It's not like it was 20 years ago no, it was from just, the movie coming out. Just far enough back, I think, to use an adult woman. Well, she sounds like a to, an older adult woman, not a 20-year-old or however old she would be. Yeah, that's true, too. 20, 25. But I guess people I, I were... The wistfulness older years. Yes, and I think people were just older earlier back then. <laughs> In 1985? Yeah, I do. I mean, hey, at this point, 1985 is over 30 years ago. That's true. Now, why 76? I figure of all the years for them to just like pick a year in the past to stick it in, which was only nine years previously. Right. So it's like people are still driving around in cars from then and like right. wearing of clothes course. from them. At least not the teenagers, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're going to miss... It's not like the decade ticks over and everyone suddenly goes, all right, we're now we're dressing in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get some neon. <laughs> they kept their browns. Yeah. Um, oh, Yes. But if you're going to miss a 4th of July and have it really sting, mm, the bicentennial 4th of July That's a good point. would be the one to just be like, ah, what? it's the biggest 4th of July. That I'll ever see. Yeah. And Marty's going to miss it because of some stupid werewolf. The last full moon of that spring came a little more than a month before school let out for summer vacation. town 
Jones' long nightmare began that night. One thing I wanted to bring up with you specifically is we get a kill at the beginning of the movie, which is this transit worker. Yeah. In 1976, it might as well have been your dad. Well, in 76, he was a welder. Damn it. <laughs> but yeah, he did work for uh, transit uh, I was later. almost right. Still clever, Cat. Still clever. Yes, thank you for, uh, for remembering my dad and his mm. career with the railroad. Always. The killing had begun. But at first, no one knew it. So, yeah, going in order, it's spring. So, mm-hmm. you know, books. Mm-hmm. There's no seasons Mm-mm. in this. No. So everything looks the same, which is one of the reasons you need the narration. Because sometimes they'll do like a scene, and then it's like a month later. Mm-hmm. And you got to have somebody come in. I love the narration. I think it's such a smart choice, especially because it gives you... And from the character you, it's from. Yes, and it gives you the feeling that, like, something... At the very least, you have someone who made it out on the other end of whatever bad thing has happened. Mm-hmm. Who's like... It gives you a sense of comfort, sort of. But yeah, it feels very wistful. And in the book, I wrote that she's... 13 and Marty is 10. Do we think they're a little older in the movie? They're like a year older. Yeah. Than that in the movie. He seems he's, he's, 12 he's, or he's, 13 in the movie. In real life, probably. In real life, he was 13. Okay. He's playing 11 and she's playing almost 15. I think that makes sense. And since it takes place over a year, you yeah. know, by then she must be almost 16. I think that's fair. I wrote that part of the narration at the top says, A town, Tarker's Mills. A town where people cared about other people as much as they cared about themselves. Quickly dispelled. Yeah, everybody's like, like awful to scene. each other. You see the man yelling at her, that's not my baby. That's not my bun you're She's She's Louise. Oh, by the way, this screenplay was written by Stephen King. That's right. And I don't know how often that's happened with Stephen King movies, but this is definitely mm-hmm. one of them. So mm-hmm. if you're like, would Stephen King have done that? The answer is yes. That's right. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, so we meet Marty and his, his sister, Jane, Janie, mm-hmm. and they don't get along. She's his burden. Yeah. They say, and like, for most of her... Or he's her burden? What'd I say? You said she's his... I mean, let's be real, it goes both ways, I think, mm. <laughs> in some ways. Uh, she falls in a mud puddle because of him and his jerk friend, Brady, and then later that night, he tries to pay her back for the pantyhose that got ruined, which I'm guessing... She hasn't been wearing pantyhose very long, so it's like a thing of her just like, I'm becoming a woman. I'm yeah. going to wear pantyhose. Yeah. Now I wear legs. Legs have memory on. One thing I noticed that I sort of think like, okay, I guess maybe we have to consider the narrator and I'm probably just being too generous. But like, you know, the mom is just cartoonishly showing favoritism towards Marty. The one in the wheelchair? Yeah, which like, I get it. But also part of me is like, oh, is this in part so intense that she's like so – she's so blaming of the daughter and so forgiving of the kid that mm-hmm. like is this because we're hearing this from Janie's perspective? Oh. Because that's probably how it felt. That's how it feels when you're a kid and you're getting blamed for stuff sure. that isn't your fault or isn't entirely your fault or you're given too much responsibility for your age you know, and you're being expected to do things and be certain ways that you – don't feel as fair. I just feel like that her mom is just so rude about it. Maybe that's why. Good point. And I think she's sort of opposite from the book also. Mm-hmm. Also written by Stephen King, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, she's sort of tough love towards Marty because I think she's afraid, like, someday I'm not going to be here and he's going to have to, you know, 
do this stuff himself. Yeah. But in the movie, she's very precious with Marty. Mm-hmm. And so is the dad, and probably so is most of the town, which is why Uncle Red is such an important character. Yeah. A lot of people who kind of remember the movie or know something a little bit about the movie will just go like, Silver Bullet, with Gary Busey? Yep. Which comes with it um, just going, Gary Busey? Yeah. It means so much more today even than it did then because now he's um, he's really leaned into his persona as kind of an off-the-wall kind of guy. Yeah. At the time, he was still like an unpredictable guy, but that was more like personality and drugs. Yeah. But boy, does the camera love that electricity. Yeah. He's so fun to watch. Yes. And him and... Have we even said his name out loud? Oh, yeah. I don't think Corey we Corey Haim. Corey Haim. That, Corey that Haim. opening scene with Corey Haim and Gary Busey... And by opening... I just mean the first scene they're really in together. Yes. I just wrote down the chemistry. Those they're two. They're so good together. I mean, they're both such great actors, but they're so good together. Mm-hmm. Like, they just really are. Hey, there's a guy sitting in the bar. Bartender says, hey, Jackass, give me a drink. So the bartender pours him a drink. He drinks it. Sits there for a while. Says, hey, Jackass, pour me another drink. So he pours another drink. The guy gets up and leaves. The guy that's sitting there says, hey, why do you let him call you Jackass all the time? The bartender says, oh, he 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 always called me that. So Uncle Red, he's like the only person who doesn't treat Marty like he's going to break. Yeah. He's bombastic around him. He curses around him. He tells him off-color jokes. In the book... He takes him for fast rides in his car, which, which nobody would do with him. Mm-hmm. He's the fun uncle, which everyone likes a fun uncle. Yeah. But Marty needs a fun uncle in that house, mm-hmm. which gives us our opening scene with him, which is they're playing poker <laughs> for baseball cards. Right. Me- and, meanwhile, uh, though, he's, he's Uncle Red's drinking the wild turkey right out of the bottle. Yeah. And just starts like an off-color baseball chant when he's like, "All right, I'm gonna bet a Yankee." And he just goes. Do it with me if you remember. I don't. Piss on the Yankees. Oh, Piss yeah. Piss on the Indians. Piss on the Phillies. That's, <laughs> That's as right. far as he gets. That's right. They're pissing on all of them. And he's such a big physical presence. I'm sure like the whole living room is probably shaking just as he like, yeah. does his chant as, you know, can't bet managers. Can't bet managers. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Yeah. Ah. Oh. Yeah. And he's, you he's know. He's wonderful. Oh. <laughs> Good night. Good night. I'll see you later. Yeah. I'll see you in the morning. Okay. I'll see you in the morning. Okay. Wake me up. Okay. No, I'll wake you up. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, of course, the sister doesn't like, and she's like, get your life in order. Right. Which he's, it does, werewolf or no, sort of set him on the path. We don't see him a lot, but like the next time we see him is like at a funeral and he goes for like a, a flask mm. and then he's like, maybe I better not drink at this funeral. He still <laughs> drinks. Yeah. In later scenes, but it's like, maybe right now that's like his arc. Yeah. How am I doing today, Gary Busey? You're doing great. Good. Then I'll keep it up. Now, I never didn't know, which is to say I always knew it was the Reverend. Mm-hmm. If I knew anything about this, I knew it was a Reverend with the eye patch. Yeah, I don't remember discovering it. I'm sure at some point I did, but... I wonder if they were laying enough groundwork for us to think, maybe Uncle Red's the werewolf. I can't, I'm incapable of being objective about that because, because I can't. There's that line. She's like, you blow in here once a month. Oh. <laughs> stir things up. I never thought about that. I started thinking about it just when he's leaving on the 4th of, well, in order to make all their dates line up to have Halloween be on the full moon, his fireworks aren't actually on the 4th. There's just one line. Everything looks like the 4th. And then he goes, you're going to have a 4th of July in September. 
Yeah. It might have been looped. I don't know. But it's just yeah. so no one pulls out their calendar and goes, sure. hey. Sure. Technically, the fireworks scene is in September. Interesting. But when he leaves, he's howling. He, he leaves, like, in his car, and he's like, yeah. where's the werewolf? Bye. And it's like, yeah, maybe. I never thought about that. He comes and he goes. He comes in about once he's a month. He's wild. He certainly is. And He's wh- drinking a lot. Is that to forget the pain of all the people he's killed? Wouldn't it be crazy if Marty did have to go up against his own Uncle Red? Oh, man. Right? His that beloved be Uncle Red? I wonder if maybe in a remake they would go down that route. Mm. But that that's all just me just wondering like, yeah. if they were trying to make it a bit of a, who is it? Because who it is, is the um, handsome, talented Everett McGill. Can I help you, Joe? I think you'd better come along with me, Reverend. I knew him from Twin Peaks. Same. He was also, he was already in Dune. Mm, mm-hmm. Directed by David Lynch and produced by De Laurentiis. And I don't know if he like gave a great performance in Dune or if it's just like he was just a great guy. You know, sometimes someone's just a great human being. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if I'm going to have you around for the eight weeks it takes to make a movie or months to make a TV show, let me have this guy around. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because Lynch later used him for Twin Peaks, and De Laurentiis, soon after, used him for Silver Bullet. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe just his on-set demeanor. And, yes, and, so and on. also he's got a bit of an odd look. Sure. Just a little bit. He's handsome. Yes. But he is odd. he's got a little bit of There's an some, edge. Something going on there. Yeah. Oh, people under the stairs. Oh, yeah. it's been a long time since I watched that. Of the couple, he was the guy. There you go. Very tense from this. You have one of your headaches? Ooh, very, very tense about this. Yeah, so Everett McGill is introduced early, but it's just sort of like, hey, it's a reverend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there, mm-hmm. he, there mm-hmm. he goes. Yeah. And then at, at Brady's funeral, he presides over, at which point maybe Uncle Red is still a suspect, maybe not, I don't know. Mm. Anyways, yeah, but it's totally the Reverend. Um, just a sidebar, because you mentioned Brady's funeral. Mm-hmm. I just want to take a moment for the scene where the dad finds... Brady's father. ...comes upon his son's body. Some people are because, down on that. Wow. I think, you know what? I mean, I've never known that level of grief. And I think I anybody think it's down great. on that scene would have to defer to someone who has. I feel like... It's just the sound the heart makes. I feel like I was just watching the commentary the other night, and the director said something about how he was over the top or something, like made some kind of mildly disparaging remark about that moment. But what I thought was interesting was the -the behind-the-scenes thing from the Blu-ray. The actor talks about how the special effects team was trying to get the body to look right. Prosthetic, mangled boy. Right. And they couldn't get it. And he told the director, like, just put the camera on me. I can handle it. And I think he handled it beautifully. Like, basically, he was saying to the director, let's just play it off of me. I will bring all the reaction that seeing the prosthetic boy should have brought. 10 out of 10 from me. I think he's great. I imagine that's the sound your heart would make. I think so. in In that instance. Yeah. Um, taken on its own, it does sound rather silly. If I were to just like slip in the sure the sound of it with out of context, right? <laughs> but yeah, in the moment, 
I was right there with you it. You can't be in control of what your what sounds are going to come out of you if you yeah. find your kid like mangled in the gazebo, gazebo in the town square. As for me, I'm going to go out and hunt up a little private justice. You heard him? Let's go! I'd like to talk about, I'll just call it the posse. Sure. The private justice. Mm-hmm. The townsfolk. All the townsfolk. The torchbearers. Take up arms and go looking for the werewolf. Mm-hmm. Now, he's never attacked in the woods before, but they do start in the park mm-hmm. where Brady was attacked and fan out from there. Yeah. Believing like... That's where he, you know, might. Well, he's never attacked in the woods, but he might be hiding in the woods. Yeah, I think yeah. So they started at at the park. Mm -hmm. So that's logic. Yeah. And the deeper they go into the woods, the scarier it gets, and the denser it gets, and the more like a movie set it gets. Yeah. Also, we did leave out the guy. They don't have an abusive husband, but they do have like a jerk alcoholic father Mm -hmm. of the girl that Corey Haim's best girl. Mm -hmm. He gets in the greenhouse. And I'm like, that greenhouse, once he starts getting into it, into it, it's like a forest. Yeah. It's like standing in for the forest until we can get to the actual forest. Totally. And uh, Don Cuscarelli, Mm -hmm. he says his only contribution that made it to the screen was that fog. Because he was still trying to think of ways to mask the werewolf. Yeah. So it was like, lots of fog. And sure enough, they got lots of so much, like a silly amount of fog. Yeah. But it's not that way as soon as they get out of their trucks. They got to like go deep into the haunted woods. Yeah. To this fog air where like the fog comes up to your waist. Now that fog was made with dry ice. And you ever like drink a drink with dry ice, like a mad scientist drink? Yeah, you've made one for me. There you go. You might like kind of your breath, kind of takes Mm -hmm, your breath away. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because the CO2 is using up the oxygen in the cup. So if you were to go down into that bank of fog, you really can't breathe very well. Yeah. All of this is leading to why they use the baseball bat. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no. I can't think of his name. Starts with an L. The actor who had the peacekeeper baseball bat. The peacemaker. The peacemaker. Lawrence Tierney. Now you boys better turn down your thermostats or you can both get the hell out of here. So Lawrence Tierney, who was getting on in years, even by Silver Bullet. Having him go down and then, like, try to reemerge and get sucked down again, which was the original plan. Like, you get down the fog, then you kind of make it out, and then the werewolf would grab him and just be like, you know, get back here so I can kill you. Bringing him in and out of that much dry ice, he would have just lost all of his breath. It would have been no good for him. So then they came up with the idea that, like, you can see him fending off the werewolf with the bat in the hand, and then... And it's kind of comical, but I'm on board. And then the werewolf has the bat, and now he's yeah. being... And you just see his arm up above the fog. Yeah. And it's silly, and I think that's as far as they go with that scene. Well, one thing I did want to say about that scene is um, I watched this movie a lot as a kid growing up. Yeah. And we would watch it as a family. I think maybe it played on TV a lot. I don't know. But in any case, one thing I always heard from my mom every time we watched it was... That she knew someone who was in that scene. Yes. And I couldn't remember the details of that. So I called her and I was like, am I remembering correctly that you knew someone who was in Silver Bullet? And she was like, oh, yeah. She said his name. You sent me this and I saw he got a name. He got a character name. Rick Posado. 
Rick Pisano. Um, and he is the guy who says, it's right under us, and then gets pulled down. I assume a local hire? Yeah. And my mom knew him because she worked with him. He was like an accountant at a job she worked. And he said he was in this movie. Accountant slash actor. As a kid, I was like, you know somebody who was in this movie? Cool. And I sent you his obituary. Um, sadly, he passed away in 2012. When I talked to my mom, she was like, I'm pretty sure he died. And then I found that at obit, and I sent it to her, and I was like, is this him? And she was like, yeah. He's got a mustache. If mm-hmm. anybody's. So he's in the bar, and I believe he's the one who, speaking of accounting, when Andy, the town blowhard, is like, we pay our taxes, this sheriff, and he couldn't catch a cold. Yeah. And he's like, last town report said you were in arrears in your taxes, Andy. Guess you caught up. (laughs) That was him. That was him. The next scene. Cat. Oh, Cat. Oh, Marshall. It's the funeral scene. The dream. Oh, my goodness. The way the, um... Church members are swaying. Right from go. Like one row is swaying this way and the other one's swaying the other way. And it's kind of dizzying and like. It it comes in degrees. Yeah. Even before this is the scene where all of the the churchgoers turn into werewolves. It's so cool and very scary as a kid. And it's the church is smoking. I realize some churches use incense. Maybe they do. Catholic churches. Oh, okay. And I think he's Baptist in the book. I'm not sure if they ever say it in the movie, like what religion he's supposed Mm -mm. to be. One where suicide's a sin. (laughs) But I think that's really all of them. Most of them, yeah. It's hard. At a time like this to find the words to offer you any comfort. There is no comfort. (laughs) So it happens in degrees. First it's like... That's a little weird. Everyone's just sort of swaying weird. And then, like, one of the town's guys just has, like, a weird look on his face. Then the, the father, Brady's father, is like, My son was torn apart, Reverend! And everyone's, now they've got big eyes and, like, maybe needs a shave. And then it's like, oh, he's clearly a werewolf because now they've got pointy teeth. And Marshall's all- getting really worked up right now, you should know, if you're listening to this. And you can't see him, but this is one of Marshall's triggers is involuntary metamorphosis. So a, a church full of people is a dream. turning into, it's a dream. Is it, a, it's a ter- terrifying nightmare. Yeah. yeah. The only person not changing is the one having the dream and the one who's actually the werewolf. But, mm-hmm. like, you know. What do you do when you can only have a werewolf once a month? You throw in a dream. Yeah. That, that's effective. what Werewolf in London did. Yeah. And what an image. And it just gets crazier and crazier. Peaking in craziness, I think, with the organist, <laughs> who is like a werewolf organist, and she's just still banging on the organ, but just like, gang, con, gang, con. They howl and the windows explode. Somewhere in the special features, I think this was from the guy who plays Brady's father, like a warning went out. It's like, okay, um,. Those of you with the contact lenses in, if you're under these hot lights for more than so many minutes, they'll fuse to your eyeballs. So let's try not to have them oh, in too long. Or God. Like it was hot and it was miserable and it was, you know, like you'd think with any makeup job. I think the makeup in this, and part of why it's so great in the movie is because the werewolf, the completed werewolf, and the more you see of it, the more you're like, looks kind of like a bear. Mm. Also... It doesn't look great. Also, it walks flat on its feet, and I really think it should be kind of up a bit. Yeah. But that's just me based on other werewolf movies. Sure. You know, I'm like, that's not how a werewolf walks. None of that stuff mattered much to me as a kid. No. Because I was just scared. No, certainly no. And it it only kind of matters as an adult when you watch it like Mm -hmm. five times in two months. 
yeah. preparing for a podcast. Yeah. Now that was Everett McGill in the werewolf suit. I heard that, and I thought that was so delightful. When he was hired, he's like, oh, I'm not going to get in the suit. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, could you? Because <laughs> I think, like, the guy they hired wasn't working out. And McGill's, I mean, no wonder they thought he was such a pro off of Dune, because he's such a pro. Mm-hmm. So it really was him in the werewolf suit, even though he's entirely un- unrecognizable. Yeah. What a sport. And a physical presence when he's even not a werewolf, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by the way. So all that individual metamorphosis makeup all look better than that yeah. full werewolf costume. Yeah. Let me see if I got this right. The guy killed your best friend. Drove your best girl out of town. And now he's responsible for canceling the only carnival you got. Am I lying? No. Not lying, Uncle Red. Going back to uh, Gary Busey, who makes, and this is a total invention of the movie, the silver bullet. Both his wheelchairs are called the Silver Bullet, but the one we think of when we say Marty riding the Silver Bullet is the three-wheel motorcycle he builds for his it's so cool. handicapped nephew. Yeah. And it's silver. It's a Silver Bullet. Yeah. And he can go super fast, which is good because he has to outrun a werewolf later. Ta-da! Marty has more of a connection now with the killings. Because it was his best friend that got killed, not just some kid he knew in school. Mm-hmm. So the fireworks weren't sort of the first thing that Marty lost. It was just the latest. Yeah. But uh, Uncle Red is there. And going back to the book, you made a note. In the book, he's visiting for the 4th of July to have the traditional <laughs> salmon and fresh peas. Yeah. I can only assume this is a Maine thing or a New England thing. <clears throat> okay. if, you'll, if you'll allow. <laughs> You've looked into this. Well, I had to because I was like, huh? Salmon and fresh. I mean, don't get me wrong. It sounds delicious. But I was like, what is this? Um, I'm not saying this is going to be riveting, but here goes. Pairing salmon and peas on the 4th of July has been a New England tradition for as long as America has been a country. Mm. Maybe even longer than that, some historians speculate. Why salmon and peas? Well, the salmon's annual migration up New England's rivers from the Atlantic made them an available and delicious source of protein for early settlers in the summer months. And the late June ripening of peas made for a clear choice of pairing for a flavorful, nutritious dish. So it just became tradition because that's the stuff that was seasonal, as happens with a lot of food, I think. I just never heard of that being a thing before. No, no. Um, but it is. Maybe it'll just keep popping up now that we know it's a thing. Yeah. Here's how you started. Do you remember what I told you? Yeah. Now be damn careful. Okay. Thing started. Put, put your hand on the brake. Push. There you go. Push. So, he makes him the silver bullet, which goes super fast, and it's great. He's a like, great fun uncle. And then he gives him the fireworks so he can have his own 4th of July. And you can see... So much of, like, Gary Busey just giving his own his own lines, which are all great. And just Gary Busey's presence, like, I mean, I know it's been amped up lately now that we know that he had motorcycle brain damage, which affected his, like, social skills. Oh, it's dead meat. At the time, what he was was a um, recovering drug addict who was no longer getting really starring roles, but he did get, you know, billed under... Actually, it's probably top build, but, you know, it's the werewolf that's on the poster, mm-hmm. <laughs> not Gary Busey. And he gained a lot of weight, which for me was perfect for Uncle Red. Absolutely. But two years later, he'd be in fighting shape for Lethal Weapon. Who are you? That's hardly important, but if it matters, you may call me Mr. Joshua. 
I also wanted to mention, because I, I texted this to you after you told me, like, my mom knows a guy who was in the movie. Yeah. And I was like, I had an encounter with Gary Busey. Yes. Okay. I was briefly stuck in an elevator with Gary Busey, like my first year in Los Angeles. Stuck for how long? How long is brief? Less than a minute. But I was doing some PA work on a uh, Russian made-for-TV movie that was shooting in Los Angeles, which included Gary Busey, Eric Estrada, and Eric Roberts. Wow. As, like, the names they could get, you know, to be in it for a few days each. And we were in an office building, and I was taking Gary Busey to set me. Yeah, must have Yeah, been. that makes sense. And earlier in the day, someone pointed out to me, like, okay, the elevator gets kind of stuck some parts. So there's these two buttons, and you, like, hit them like this. Bop, bop, bop. Oh, that's comforting. You know? And as long as you do, like, these two buttons, just, like, pop, 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 that'll unstick it, and it'll go. So I'm going down with, like, Gary Busey and his, I guess, girlfriend. We're in the elevator going to the floor that we're shooting on, and the elevator just goes, and he starts, he starts, like, I'm not even there, just starts, like, kind of, like, walking kind of up against the lady going, well, it looks like we're stuck for a little while. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I'm there just going, I know what to do. And I, I just do that, like, bup, 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 that I was taught. And the elevator starts moving again. Oh. At which point, Gary Busey, like, leans on me. And, like, I'm a big guy. He's a bigger guy. Oh, my goodness. And he just, like, puts his weight on me. goes, you knew what to do. You knew what to do. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I sure did. I stole one of the soda cans he drank out of and mailed it back to my friends at the video store that I worked in, which they couldn't figure out because they opened the box the wrong way and didn't see my note. And they're like, why is he sending us an empty can of A&W diet cream soda? And then later they found the note and like, oh, it's Gary Busey's. Nice. Wow. So That's a go. good story. That's my Hollywood minute. Well, you did know what to do. You didn't need Gary Busey to tell you, but it's nice to hear it anyway. And if, if you're trying to figure out what era Gary Busey this was, this was while the I'm with Busey show was airing. Mm, mm-hmm. So that's kind of prime Busey. Wow. Who is not the werewolf. Nope. Made this great motorcycle. When he calls for help, he's just like, have some mercy on your poor uncle and just kind of hangs up on him. And so Marty has to enlist the help of his sister. And now she just drops the rivalry. Really? Yeah. She believes that he believes it. Right. And goes into... I love that Halloween bit where he goes around trick-or-treating slash looking for a werewolf, but I really love her going around collecting for bottles and cans for the church. It's a really thrilling sequence. Yeah, it's so small-town, like, detective. And she goes into places of men, you know? She's, like, 15, and she's going to the barbershop. Oh, my God, that barbershop scene. Just men. And she, like, takes the towel off the guy's eyes, and she's looking for a man with one eye. Yeah. A townsperson with one eye. And it says man or woman, but she keeps going to places of men. So she goes into the diner where, like, men take their meals. They're probably there every day, all the regulars. And she's like, excuse me, everybody. Do you have any bottles and cans? And she's, like, scanning all their eyes. And they got some great faces. Oh, yeah. And everybody's just staring at her. Staring real weird. And then she's just like, ugh. Nobody here has one eye. (laughs) My booger of a brother just sent me on some wild goose chase until she takes all the bottles and cans to the church for the can drive. And who's there gardening with an eye patch? It's the Reverend Lowe. Oh, horrifying. Yeah. And she's like, oh, my brother's the worst. He's like, brothers can be that way. <laughs> Such reveal. Because first you see him from behind. Yeah. And then they just sort of bring in the camera from his right. 
So the eye patch is the last thing you see. And then, watch the movie like five times in two months. You'll, you'll start to notice little things. When she's next to the garage, behind her, the first time you ever really see it is a, is a graveyard. Mm. And once you get into the garage, it reminds me of the junkyard from the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Yeah. Like, it's just stuff. But it's a cemetery for stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. It's like nothing good happens in here. <laughs> I don't know if there's bodies under there because the baseball bat's there. Right. For me, one of the biggest leaps in logic is that she knows about the baseball bat. Yeah. But in a small town, certain bits of legend does reach the kids. Sure, sure. So maybe, yeah, she does know about the peacekeeper. Yeah. Lawrence Tierney's yeah. bat that he only takes out when people start fighting. By the way, I wrote this down as a note, and maybe, like, this is just sort of an is-this-anything thing. You got a deep cut for me? No, it's really just a question. Mm. I feel like I've seen it in movies here and there, a bat called, like, the Peacemaker or the Peacekeeper, or a paddle for, like, kids that's, like, the disciplinarian. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Is that any, like... It's just kind of ubiquitous. Did that start somewhere as like a thing in one movie and then it became a thing in other movies? Like I can tell you that the most it's not one would have to be the natural. The Robert Redford baseball movie. Okay. Where he has his own bat that I believed he carved from a tree that was struck by lightning. So there's that intimation that it's got the lightning in it. And I think he carves Wonder Bat into it. Okay. Or Wonder Boy. I don't know. I've seen it parody. I don't uh -huh. remember what the original said. Yeah. And then when it like comes down to it, he's got like the old bat that he started with. That has a word on it. And maybe that is where it originated. But like the ones I'm thinking of are like this one and the other one that comes to mind is like the new Halloween Kills. There's a bat in the bar. I think that was actually a reference to Silver Bullet. You do? I do. That'd be cute. That makes me like it more. Well, so maybe it's all just referencing itself or... But I was also looking for Easter eggs because I was like, on the TV, they're watching Night of the Living Dead, which yeah. is the movie that was on in Halloween 2. Right. And this is the second Halloween of the right, series. Right, Yeah, and I guess I'm just thinking specifically about... Because the Wonder Bat or whatever, Wonder Boy, that name isn't an ironic name for what you do with the bat. Do you know what I mean? Like a mm, bat okay. called the Peacemaker. It's like, I'm going to make you some peace and you're, as you beat it into your fist and you're going to beat somebody with it, which is not peace at all. That's violence. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I got weirdly hung up on it and I was trying to like search somehow online to see like, is this a trope that is in many places? Wonder Boy. What does it mean? Yeah. So she finds the bat. So that's how she comes really on board. Yeah. And then it's time for Uncle Red. And this is when he gets out the, uh, of all the lines that you're like, that was probably Gary Busey. I really want to get it right. Please do. The holy jump, if you've got it written down. Okay. Holy jumped up bald headed Jesus Palomino. What on earth does that even mean? I mean, I can break it down one at a time, but I don't think it would bring us any closer to an overall I meaning. agree. <laughs> that, but you know what? He gets his point across, doesn't he? Yes. It's an exclamation. What more do we need to know? When he finds out that they've been sending letters to the reverend That's saying, some like, serious kill stuff. yourself. Yeah. In the book, Marty signs the third letter. Mm-hmm. And because no one's come after him to be, like, telling his father or his school principal or something... That's how he knows knows. That it, that it is the reverend. That it is the reverend. He knows it's the reverend, but he's basically put himself out there as bait. Yeah. He's confirmed who the werewolf is yeah. and made himself bait. Because if he signed it and the reverend isn't 
the werewolf. werewolf. He's going to be like, this poor kid needs some help, you know? Slash, yeah. I'm going to go to your parents. I'm going to talk to your father. Right. But yes. since he doesn't, it's like, aha. We found the werewolf, mm-hmm. for sure, for sure. Pretty clever. There is a, a nice chase scene between the silver bullet and a car. Because why have a silver bullet and not have a chase scene? Daniel Adias, uh, the director's uh-huh. commentary, he talks about that scene, but also the scene where Marty's just testing it out for the first time. And he like pops a wheelie and everything, yeah, yeah, and he's pointing out joyride. he's pointing out all these shots that he's like, "Yep, that's Corey Haim. That's Corey Haim." He's like, "What were we thinking?" But yeah, the chase sequence is pretty chase scary. Sequence, and he goes into the. The covered bridge. The, the only real scene between the two, mm-hmm. I mean, when he's not in a werewolf costume, is in the covered bridge. And he's like, I'd never purposely harm a child. And in my memory, even after having seen it several times, I was like, oh, yeah. And then he, he turns a little bit into a werewolf and then he stops. It's all performance. Only in your heart he turns a little bit into yeah. a werewolf. Yeah. It's all physicality and like, oh, his hair is a little mussy. You know, and he's got a bit of a it's five o'clock wild. shadow. Yeah. But besides that. It's not like later when the cop decides to investigate the garage and he gets his. Mm-hmm. He turns half wolf kind yeah. of in that yeah. bit. But no, it's all performance in the covered bridge. And I do love that he, Marty, calls for help. And like this farmer comes over. The reverend takes off, you know, we'll meet again. And he just sticks his head and goes, spooky, isn't it? Which one, what a great cap. Oh my goodness. To the scene. Yeah. But also it says like, you have no adults in your corner. You need an adult, not this guy. Yep. So then they really bring Uncle Red on. He becomes convinced enough that he takes, and I like this detail, they give him silver, but not just any silver. It's a religious icon, mm-hmm. right? like a crucifix and a medallion, mm-hmm. both religious. And that's what's used to make the bullet. Which, and, by the way, yeah, I read up a little bit. Did you see this detail that it's actually a reference to like a very old story, a very old werewolf story that I had never... Why Silver? Yeah. No. There's this story, the Beast of Gévaudin. I don't know. It's French. It says probably the most famous werewolf story in history. Okay, Wikipedia. I'm just now hearing about it. Next American Werewolf in London. (laughs) But they're saying that this story of the beast is the origin of the silver bullet myth. It says in the story, a werewolf rampaged through the French countryside for three years in or near this town. According to the story, after the beast killed the wife and child of a local hunter, he had his cross, a family heirloom, made into a silver bullet and made the local priest bless it three times. Because of its popularity, this story has found its way into many works of fiction regarding werewolves. So I guess this is a nonfiction, like mythological sort of tale, a legend, if you Mm. will, about a man who... Did this very thing. Did this very thing. So I didn't realize that. Somehow we hadn't gotten there yet. In the book, Uncle Al takes the silver to this just friend of his that he has. Yeah. But if you're going to call the movie Silver Bullet and have this one thing that can kill the beast, I'm glad they went the direction they did with the the old world craftsman. It's a cool scene. Yeah. And that they gave it like this step by step, you know, melt the silver, pour it in the mold. And just that old guy. Imagine stealing a scene from Gary Busey, <laughs> but he does it. Yeah. It was just like, you know, it's the finest work I've ever done. It's got a low grain low, so it won't tumble. Ought to be pretty accurate. Oh, 
Why, shoot, it's just a gag. I mean, uh, what the heck are you going to shoot a 44 bullet at anyway? Made out of silver. How about a werewolf? <laughs> it's great. Yeah, and you're like, oh, man. He's probably one of those, like, townsfolk who, like, puts it together, but, like, who's he going to tell? Yeah. Like, oh, the guy who's coming in asking for a silver bullet. Yeah. That's totally, him. totally. Yeah. So one thing about living in Tucker's Mills, I never could stomach all oh, the damn all werewolves. The damn werewolves. Yes, you know? yes. It's, it's so that much, moment. Yeah. It's so much that, and then we never see him again. Yeah. Um, and then it's it's Halloween night, which is when the next full moon is. And I wish we got to see the town shuttered because no one's going to be out this Halloween. Mm-hmm. But like on Halloween, and just like the streets are empty. Yeah. The wind is howling. Some kind of Halloween like paper. Decorations just flapping in the wind on the door, just yeah. We are of one mind. Uh-huh, here. Uh-huh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I would love to see that. Totally. We don't. We get to see the uh, the Kozlov house as the TV goes off the air. Always a spooky moment for me. Yeah. In a movie, it's, of ne- it's never going to go general. well. Yes, because of Poltergeist specifically. That that's exactly why. There's something about watching Poltergeist late at night, too late as a kid, and seeing that sign-off that just made me feel, like, abandoned and alone. And it's why, like, I'm so thankful that I have a smartphone for when I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't get that scene out of my head from The Sixth Sense. That's the only thing as an adult that I can't get out of my head late at night where the kid says, do you want me to show you where my dad keeps his gun? And then he turns around and his head's all blown off. It's why I like that TVs don't sign off, that I can watch TV any time of day when I need to get something scary out of my head. But in this movie. In this movie. Um, the TV signs off. TV signs off and Uncle Red's like, I'm starting to feel like a real horse's ass. And he takes the bullet out of the gun. In the book, they have two bullets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a better idea to just have the one. The one chance. You guys are going to bed. But Uncle Red, you said. I know what I said. But it's 10 to 3 in the morning and it's not coming. The moon's not down yet. Well, it's damn near down. Did we mention the parents comically, Marty and Jane's parents comically, like, leave town? Yeah. Doesn't Uncle Red get, he, he won some He says he won a romantic vacation. And sends them off, yeah. But really, he just bought yeah, them a vacation totally. just to get him out of the house. Yeah. So, you know, Uncle Red's committed at yeah. this point. Well, and I, I just think from a character standpoint, it's so charming that, like, yeah, he's on their side I mean, even though he doesn't really believe it, in part because, like, them trusting him, him having earned their trust, is important. You know what I mean? It probably goes a long way towards his self-esteem and, like, that relationship he has with his, you know, niece and nephew. No, his niece and nephew. Like, you know what I mean? Because, like, I think it's a little bit of a, I guess they're just that excited to go off on their fun vacation. I think it's a little bit hard to believe that she would want to leave them with Uncle Red. And maybe that's the only reason she would want to. But I'm just talking about his relationship with Marty. That, like, he wouldn't immediately want to dismiss the kid. Because he's gone a long way towards earning that kid's trust. And it means a lot. And so, like, that's why he makes the leap of, like, all right, I'll get you a dumb bullet made. It'll probably be fine. I'll come sit with you, you know. Mm-hmm. Till he last minute loses a little faith in the whole thing. Yeah. Takes a bullet out. And a werewolf comes not through the window, not through the door, through the wall. Yeah. Rah! Yeah. Werewolf through the wall. Bullet goes flying. And I like in the end, it's not just Uncle Red takes care of him. And it's not just Marty takes care of him. But like everyone's got their job. Yeah. Jake, get the 
the gun goes one way and the bullet goes another. Oh, the bullet falls into like a great little little heating oh. vent. Meanwhile, Janie, she goes after the gun. Werewolf almost gets her. It's Red's job to get thrown around, literally thrown. Yeah. And Gary Busey, like, is doing those stunts, too. And so between the three of them together, so it's not like Janie just stands in the corner and screams, or Marty just stays in his chair and goes, you know, Mm -hmm. what's happening? All three of them together manage to... I mean, in the end of the day, it's Marty who gets the gun and shoots him in the other eye. And then you get a nice, because we never got a... Well, I guess we did something of a transformation scene. But something that even American Werewolf in London didn't have was a return scene. Pretty cool. That one's just, you know, you cut away, you cut back, it's a naked man. Yeah. But this one, he actually turns back. You get to see the hair, like, retracting into the skin. Which, awesome. But also, that's how they filmed the hair coming out in American Werewolf in London. Mm -hmm. They retracted hair and then just showed it backwards. Yeah. But this one, they just retracted it. For retracting sake. Mm-hmm. Holy cow, Jesus, Palomina. God. And, you know, you get the, the last scare, which... Oh. It's a good last scare, and it lets me believe that, like, yeah, it was time to take the Reverend Lowe off the earth. Because, like, he was more beast than man Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. Not just as far as the cycle of the moon, but I think, you know, and they were like, maybe he gets more wolfier the fuller the moon is. We were going off that logic. Yeah. You know, that way we could get a little non-fuller wolf. I think the longer he was going through being a werewolf, the more on his own time he was becoming the beast. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's well summed up when both eyes shot out. He just, yeah, lunges for that final scare. That horror movies so good. need. Mm-hmm. And then it's over. And then you get the final bit. Little joke. Oh, it's such a great joke. I can't feel my legs. <laughs> yeah, he says, I don't think I can move my legs. Something That's right. like that. Yeah. Ugh, how funny. And then she comes in for that final bit of narration. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I can say it now. I love you, Marty. Good night. And it's like, oh, so he's dead now, I guess? That's what some people think. That's what I think. That's what it seems to be being heavily implied. But when the interviewer during the director's commentary brought that up, the director was like, I can totally see why people think that. And that's definitely an option. I'm like, so it's not definitively. It just seems like she's like, I can finally say it now. Why? Because I've told the story? No, because you're dead? Why didn't you say you love me before? I don't know what's going on. It's odd. I think it might have been just like a sign-off. Just like, I don't know what time of day you're watching this movie. I'll just assume at night because it's a horror movie. received really in the theaters because it's a movie with kids the kids were all the rage mm-hmm. by 85 and martha de Laurentiis, then schumacher when they interviewed her for her commentary she i mean you know it's easy to say this in retrospect but she was like we were doing kids in danger like before stranger things sure <laughs> she yeah. was like we were shooting for r and kids in danger and like I all mean, of that stuff this wasn't too long after et Indiana Jones added a kid for the second movie. 
Mad Max added a bunch of kids for the third movie. Ewoks is basically a bunch of kids. <laughs> you know, just adding children. So, yeah, put a kid in it. No problem. But if you're going for an R and, like, an undeniable R because of gore and werewolfness, then, you know, you're trying to sell to the, the theater. The kids can't go see the movie. It's kids front and yeah. center. So this movie was, whether they knew it or not, and I'm saying not, designed to be a home video favorite. Mm-hmm. Once the kids could watch a movie with a kid in a rated R movie that they could never go see in the theater, but could manage to get out of a video store, and then on you know, cable, I suppose, as well. Yeah. It was designed for an after-theater life. Yeah. Even if they didn't know it. Plus, 84, 85, VCRs had not yet really proliferated like they would within like a year. Right. So, it was kind of perfect timing in that way. In that way, yeah. yeah. Although it's definitely I how see... it hit me was home video, like big time. We would rent it a lot. And I think it came on TV a lot. I can see how people might try to distance themselves from it and consider it a failure. And then the rest of us are just like, what? You're crazy. It's awesome. I think it's one of the better Stephen King adaptations. I really do. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's perfect. I definitely think there's some things that are weird and don't work, but... To keep that King flavor, it certainly helps that he wrote the screenplay. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I meant to... One thing I forgot to mention, just a factoid that doesn't fit anywhere. Did you read or hear anywhere that Jake Busey used to come to set and he and Corey Haim were like fast friends and hung out all the time? Yes, I think I came across that at, at some point. And I think Jake Busey has said that, like, he wasn't really acting yet, but he was watching a kid his age do it. And he was like, this looks so cool. Like, I think I want to do this. I want to step in there and do it, but I can't. Right. Because that's not something I do, but maybe I will. Yeah. Which is just so charming. Do it. And he did. Um, we've mentioned her. And since deciding to do this, uh, the world lost Martha De Laurentiis. One of the two commentaries on the Blu-ray, the Silver Bullet Blu-ray, is with Martha De Laurentiis. Also, it made mention of covering other De Laurentiis films of that period with her. Both of the commentaries were co-hosted by a real De Laurentiis historian, I Mm -hmm. guess. A fan. Well, I looked into him, and apparently the production company, and I think I might have written it down. Do you have his Um, name? I do. I will say it here. Michael Felsher? It's Red Shirt Pictures. They provide added value materials, documentaries, featurettes, audio commentary tracks, and a host of other features for major and independent home video distributors. So, like, he's a documentarian slash filmmaker. Okay. And one of the things that... 100%. But so, like, talk about what a cool thing to make your bread and butter as a fan of film and horror film and all of that. So, obviously, he has that baseline. But his job is to, you know, he gets hired on to produce commentaries and, and special features and right. things for DVDs and Blu-rays. And and it's stuff. always good to have someone in there to keep the people talking. Yes. There's... Instead of them just being in a black box by themselves. Yeah. Sometimes they'll just start watching the movie and and not just yeah. assume like, ah, who would care mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. this? And then there's someone in there going, we care. Yeah. Please elaborate. Right. <laughs> and who knows their stuff and isn't just like has a list of questions, but he, you know. Yeah. Well, I hope she got out a few more commentaries, which sounds like they were planning. Because in December, the world lost Martha. It was December, Delamantis. yeah, December twenty twenty one. Yeah, and um, look, I'm no Hollywood mover and shaker, but I do know people that have worked with her and met her and been around her quite a bit. And this is all before she died that I would hear nothing but nice things. Mm. Really, yeah. 
Which in this town, when someone's name is on the door and they're the big chief, which she was, you know, I'd say after Dino died, I don't know how the power structure was set up, mm. but she seemed to be... I think she definitely took on a bigger role as time went on, for sure. Yeah, she certainly ran that office. Mm-hmm. I would just hear nice things from different people. And in this town, I don't think you have to do much. And I'll, I'll go so far as to say you don't have to do much as a woman Oh yeah, to get a bad rep. To just Absolutely. be like, what a battle axe. 100%. Or something like that. Never matter, but... As it would sort of get to me over the years, just the different people be like, oh, what a wonderful person. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It feels, uh, I don't know which is better to say it after someone has passed or, you know, maybe I would have mentioned it anyways. Just be like, hey, I know people who have worked with her. Yeah. They only have great things to say. I probably wouldn't have said it unprompted. Yeah. But uh, now I feel good about putting it Now it's a good thing to say. Yeah. Yes. Werewolf? Werewolf? There. What? Werewolf. There. Castle. If you're listening to this episode and you want more of us talking about werewolves or if Mm. you want a primer for werewolves, we have that for you. Correct me if there's any I'm missing here, Marshall, but we have werewolf, therewolf, and that is a big one. Maybe start with that. We did Ginger Snaps, Heavy on the Werewolves. Yes. And then three part threes where we do talk a little bit about the Howling Three. Yeah, the first three Howling movies. Well, yeah, yeah. So anyway, if you want more Boys and Ghouls and Werewolves, maybe Werewolf, Therewolf. Sure. Good place to start. That one's positively dripping in in Werewolves. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, Kat, do you have any final thoughts? Well, I just want to say it was lovely to get back in the saddle um, record a new episode. Hopefully we can start doing those on a more regular cadence we again. We have no concept of what's going to be next. Yeah, who knows? We'll figure <laughs> it out. Sometimes I have an idea, but right now, no. But no this topic specifically was like a warm cup of like potato soup with you on a cold day. Do you know what I mean? Just a comfort movie for me as a kid. It was seminal for me as a kid. It scared me a lot, but I thought it was so cool. I thought Corey Haim was cute. And it's stuck with me all these years and I'm glad to have had the excuse to sort of look into it and watch it again and read the book and live in Stephen King's world because that's the only place I ever want to be. So thanks for thinking of this topic. You're welcome. And thank you folks for sticking with us. It has really been our companion through the cold months. And today is a chilly one here mm-hmm. in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and windy. Yeah. It's LA cold. <laughs> We're wimps. We have light jackets. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, As a sign-off for this werewolf movie. Oh, it's more appropriate than ever to tell all of you listening out there to beware the moon. Decay.